As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. When terror struck the Waukesha Christmas Parade. First thought is like, maybe it's Santa Claus. It was hard to fathom. I've not seen anything like this. Who would do something like that? Within hours, police had a name. 39-year-old Daryl Brooks. Daryl Brooks. Daryl Brooks. Seven months later, another officer describes seeing Brooks with no emotion on his face. The man charged with killing six and injuring more than 60. He blames his medications for... Is planning to mount an insanity defense. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson. Amanda and Jenna are on assignment this week. Instead, I am joined by a very special guest. We have Marquette University Law School professor and former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Janine Gasky. Welcome to Open Record, Justice Gasky. Thank you very much. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, June 22nd for release on Thursday, June 23rd. And earlier this week, the man charged with carrying out the Waukesha Christmas parade attack last fall changed his plea from not guilty to not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. And and Justice Gesky, I asked you to come on this podcast to help us understand what that means for this case and, and what Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Doro is going to have to consider in evaluating that defense. But before we do that, I do want to let our listeners get to know you a little bit, especially those we have on the podcast who are from outside Wisconsin and may not know much about you. We know you're a distinguished professor of law at Marquette University in Milwaukee, a director of the Andrews Center for Restorative Justice, and of course, you spent several years as a Wisconsin Supreme Court justice in the mid to late 1990s. I kind of wonder, going back to the beginning of your sort of law career, back to even your law school days, did you know, did you dream of becoming a Supreme Court justice? Did you know that was your role, or how did it lead there? No, I have to say, when I went to law school, I had never met or talked to a lawyer. I mean, I just kind of taught school for a couple of years and decided to go to law school. Um, And I knew I wanted to work with people who work in the community. And I started out as a legal aid lawyer, but it never occurred to me that I'd be a judge, not to mention somebody on the Supreme Court. So I've had a wonderful journey with a lot of mentors and supporters that have helped me along the way. So you were a circuit judge for a number of years. Is it 12 years? 12 years. And uh, did you just decide at one point to run? Were you appointed? What what, what happened there? No, Governor Tommy Thompson um, had a vacancy that he could appoint in, and he appointed me to the court. And then I had to run uh, about eight months later, a statewide campaign to be elected to the 10-year term, which I was. And then I stayed for five years and had a vocational crisis, I guess, desire to get back into the community and work more one-on-one with people. So I I quit the court in the middle of my term and I came back to Milwaukee and started working in peace building, restorative justice and mediation and teaching at the law school again. 
So you've actually been retired or resigned from the Supreme Court longer than you were a circuit judge and a Supreme Court yeah. justice. And yet you've done so much. And I really appreciate like your availability for this because you've been done so much, I think, to educate the public in the years since. You've always been very accessible to the media. And this in this particular case, Daryl Brooks, we've talked before about the motion to change venue. This is a, an unusual case, not just because it's so high profile and there's you know, it was such a, a, a tragic occurrence, but because of the sheer, we talked about the sheer number of victims in the case, the sheer number of witnesses to this event, people who were at the parade raised some real questions. And, and on Monday, Judge Doro addressed the defense's uh, a motion to move this case somewhere else and or bring in a jury from somewhere else. So before we actually get to the, to the uh, not guilty by reason of insanity plea, I know we talked about it based on what Judge Doro ruled. Any surprises there or was this essentially what you expected? Um, I'm, I'm not surprised in as much as it sounds like it's going to be a not guilty by mental disease or defect. So it, usually what that means, and I suspect it will mean here, that there isn't going to be a dispute as to what happened, what he did, whether or not it rose to a criminal um, conviction. And the issue is going to be his mental status. And we can talk about that more about what that means. And I, I, you know, people don't know him, don't know his history. They'll get to hear from psychiatrists. So I'm not surprised that she just said, you know, we can pick a jury from here because we're not looking at the facts. We're looking at his mental ability to um, be responsible for the crime. One thing you mentioned there is that typically in a case of a not guilty by mental disease or defect, you don't have that sort of contested uh, criminal sort of phase of this, but that is possible. Right? You can have someone who could plead both not guilty and not, gu- not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, where they're sort of contesting that it was even me, but if it was, then there's this mental illness issue, right? Yes, and there are defendants that do that, that put the state to the burden of proof on the first offense. And then if I, if they are found guilty, they move the jury moves on to not guilty by mental disease or defect. I'll be surprised if he does that in this case. Um, there's not much advantage for the defense to, to, to bring that whole parade of witnesses in um, in front of that jury for them to make the determination on his mental status. But he's got the right to do it. And so it's possible. Um, you know, there are really I, I suspect there are not going to be many disputed facts, except as whether he intended to hit people or not. But uh, we'll have to see. But my guess is he's going to ultimately plead guilty initially and then go to the not guilty by mental disease or defect. I want to step back just in a broad sense. What does it mean when someone pleads not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect? Why does that plea exist under the law in the first place? Well, and I'm going to, before I talk about that, I'm going to talk about mental competency because there are two areas of mental health of the defendant we look at in a proceeding and people get confused sometimes. Mental, you have to be mentally competent to go to trial. Um, And mentally competent means, uh, or incompetent means that you lack substantial ability to understand the proceedings or to assist in your own defense. So somebody can be okay at the crime and then, then go into some mental illness and not be okay to try the case. That's not the case here. Nobody is alleging Uh, It's often a defense lawyer who alleges, but at at least as far as I can see, no one's alleging that he's not mentally competent to proceed. So now we've got the secondary issue, which is a defense to a crime that he is not, um, that he's not responsible because of a mental disease or defect. Um, And 
the definition, I'm going to read it just to make sure I have it right. As a result of mental disease or defect, the defendant lacks substantial capacity to either appreciate the wrongfulness of his acts or to conform his conduct to the requirements of law. So one, if the defendant doesn't know it's wrong, what he's doing, then he's not legally responsible under um, this defense. Or if he can't confirm his behavior, that it just happened and he had no control over it. So those are the two elements of an MGI or not guilty by mental disease or, or defect charge. Many defendants plead it, not many succeed at this. Um, and that's where you really get into the facts of the case and his mental health history and taking a look whether he meets that burden or not. In this case, I, I think often when you have pleas like this, they will happen at the beginning, at the outset, maybe at the arraignment stage of a case. This is seven months in, although obviously it, it's a large case with a lot to process, so many victims. Is it at all surprising that it took seven months for this plea to emerge, or is that not necessarily all that surprising? You know, I, this is pure guessing, but uh, my guess is because of the pandemic and the many problems that the criminal justice system has had, it's probably taken this long for the defense to get a hold of an expert to do an examination of him. The defense needs an expert, a psychiatrist, who's going to say that he was not mentally responsible for this crime. And so, um, and I think, you know, they probably looked at mental competency as well, but I suspect it just took this long for them to come to the conclusion that they've got a witness and that they've got a basis on which to uh, plead this affirmative defense. So you need the expert testimony, but an expert in and of itself is not enough, right? Whether the expert for the defense opines one way or the other is not in enough in itself enough to determine. What will happen is, you know, the, the, the court will appoint an expert or the defense will suggest an expert they have and the court will will, you know, recognize that expert. The state will also ask for an expert to get a second opinion. So there'll be at least two opinions. In this particular area, and it's a little unusual, but the court can appoint its own expert. So you can actually have three experts looking at it, but that isn't all the jury's going to look at. What the jury's going to look at, his past behavior, you know, he, he allegedly tried to run down his girlfriend with a, with a car before and then tried to talk her out of it. They're going to look at not only his behavior on the day, but his behavior right after when he ran into this house and came up with an excuse about how he was waiting for an Uber. All those things are the things that the jury will hear to decide whether he could conform his behavior or he understood the wrongfulness of what he did. And so the state has pretty powerful testimony, I think, in this case um, that um, to show that he, he did understand those things and he could conform his behavior. But that's going to be the issue. So it's a lot of facts surrounding the crime and the experts is what the jury will rely on. You made reference to the the, the Uber discussion. This is where uh, just hours or shortly there, shortly after this parade attack occurred, he shows up and there's doorbell video of him showing up on this front porch of, of someone who has no idea that this has even happened. And the gentleman actually invites him in. He says, I'm, I'm homeless. I'm waiting for an Uber. Can you help me? And he invites him in, gives him a sandwich and allows him to use his phone. He thinks I'm just helping this guy who needs help. Um, in that, at that time, I believe that the gentleman who invited him in had said, you know, uh, well, you, you know about the parade going on downtown, or, or I think maybe Brooks had said something like, you know, what's going on downtown? And he says, well, there's a parade today. And Brooks responds, you know, oh, oh yeah, that must be the 
must be the parade, as though he wasn't aware there had been a parade at all. And and it certainly now looks like he was just flat out lying about what was going. He didn't want this guy to know. I've just driven through this parade route. Does that kind of statement weigh in that decision making process? Is did he really know that what had just happened was wrong? It does. And and that witness, I suspect, will te- will testify as to how he expressed that. You know, did he seem confused? Did he not really know what he was saying? Was he clear? Did, you know, did he get the sense that he was trying to cover up what had actually happened? I think the, fine, the next thing that happened, suddenly there were police cars around and then he had some excuse. And so um, that witness will be important on the, dish, on the issue of mental health because he's the first person to have contact with the defendant after the crimes. So the jury will look closely at that testimony. I know that we've seen in the record that there is a history of mental health treatment, that he'd been medicated in the past, that he'd even raised the issue of his own mental uh, health uh, concerns in previous cases. But in terms of responsibility for this act, is, is the only thing that really matters what his state was at the time the crime was committed? Or do those so does that past history come into play? Well, the past history only comes into play as to whether it informs what was happening at the time. The only thing relevant is what was happening at the time. So if he was mentally able to make decisions beforehand or not, doesn't matter. It depends what when he engaged in this criminal behavior, assuming they find that, um, the question was, is he mentally responsible? And you're looking exactly at the time of the crime um, and judging with things that happened around it to try to inform you on that decision. In your 12 years as a circuit judge, and I'm not sure how much of that was spent doing criminal court or felony court, but but did you, nine years, okay. D- did you address cases like this? Maybe not this high profile, maybe you did, I don't know, but, but did you address this? I did. Um, there were only a couple of cases that I can remember that the defense was successful on um, with a not guilty by mental disease or defect. Um, one of it was actually tried to the court. I decided the case and I found that I quitted him for a reason, a mental disease or defect. There's another stage that happens after that, which we can talk about in a few minutes if that happens. Um, but I had a brother who had lived with his brother his whole life. They both were blue collar workers. They had no criminal record. One of them got very, very sick and demanding. The other one was overwhelmed. Uh, mentally and physically with his brother. And at some point, he put a pillow over his head and killed him. Actually, the psychiatrists in that case agreed that he was mentally um, not responsible for the crime. And and so I wanted to quitting him on that grounds. And then I can tell you what happened next. But but usually this is not a successful defense. I mean, often there's some mental illness, but not enough to rise to the level of a defense in a criminal case. Well, and I think about there are so many crimes that are just so heinous. It's hard for us to imagine how could someone in their right mind do something like that. So it's easy to go, well, maybe you had to have something going on to to have just driven straight through a parade route or to have murdered all of your family members or whatever it might be. Um, but I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is there is the mere fact that what you've done is so heinous as to be antisocial and just sort of beyond belief? Is that enough to sort of qualify as, as not guilty by by reason of mental disease? No. And I'll give you an example of that Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer um, entered a guilty plea to the first phase of his um, 
you know, attacking and killing young men and then, you know, devouring them and putting them in his refrigerator and a whole other series of, of grotesque acts. And the jury did not acquit him on mental health or disease, you know, and there's a guy who obviously had a lot of mental health issues, but they didn't think it rose to the level of him not understanding the wrongfulness of what he was doing. So, um, yeah, I, you know, most of these, you would say they must be mentally ill. And sometimes there's indicia of real mental illness. The question is, does it rise to a, a high enough level that makes you not responsible for the crime? Well, and you used the legal term a moment ago that obviously gives people pause in a case like this, which is if the plea is successful, it's it's officially an acquittal. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they just walk out of the courtroom a free person. What happens if Daryl Brooks is successful? What would likely happen after that verdict comes down? And one thing I, I have to emphasize that the jury is told before they deliberate on that second part of the trial that if they find him not guilty by mental disease or defect, that he will be committed to the custody of the Department of Health and Services and will be placed in an appropriate institution or that he will be placed under court order with appropriate um, conditions. And so they're told in advance that, that he's not just gonna walk out of the courtroom um, with a, unattached if, he, if he's not convicted on that second part. Um, and so usually um, most of the people that are found not guilty by mental disease or defect are then sent to a state institution. And the law is for now for a change, but now if you're convicted, if you're found not guilty by mental disease or defect, you can be detained by an institution up to the maximum sentence. So in this case, uh, Mr. Brooks, who's facing 83 counts and multiple counts of first-degree intentional homicide, he could be detained for the rest of his life, even if he's found not guilty um, on the not guilty by mental disease or defect. So it may, in fact, end up being a question of whether he's detained in a state prison or in a mental institution treatment facility of some kind. One of the other distinctions, um, and it's just interesting, that on that second part of the plea, that only five out of the six or 10 out of the 12 jurors have to agree. So it doesn't have to be unanimous on the second part. The first part obviously has to be unanimous, um, whether he's guilty or not, if they go to trial on that particular, the first plea. I don't know how closely you continue to follow all of the developments of the legal community and, and criminal justice system, but I know in recent years there have been a few states that have actually moved to eliminate this plea as an option. I think the state of Kansas is one, and and, and there have been Supreme Court rulings on that. Um, is is there if you have followed it at all? Sort of what 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 is behind that, and 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 what has been the fallout of that, as far as you know. Yeah, I think um, what's behind it is people are frustrated that somehow they're, you know, this not guilty, um, even if there's if there's institutionalization, um, doesn't seem right if somebody has actually committed the acts. Um, I, I can tell you what it's based on historically is that if somebody truly can't um, contain their behavior, if they're just out of control mentally and are not technically responsible that we wouldn't convict them as we would somebody who made a choice to commit a crime or intended a crime. And so historically, that's the reason for the distinction. 
Um, you know, and, and um, you know, I think it, ma- it makes a lot of sense. Some people have objected because people are released out of, out of institutions sometimes earlier than people think they should. And that, that can be a problem with the system. But um, I think, you know, it makes some sense that if somebody is, you know, if you think somebody who's mentally ill and completely out of control, that somehow you're going to criminalize what they did when they couldn't, didn't have any choice. Um, you know, it doesn't seem just. And so that's the reason that, that that plea has lasted. As I said, people think it's an out. It rarely is successful in the courtroom. I recall years ago, I was uh, actually my first full-time television job in Des Moines, Iowa, and there was a, a you know, a, a, a gentleman who'd been a, a you know, in a patient in uh, a state mental institution. Um, he had escaped one time, and, and when he escaped, he actually pulled a woman into the river and nearly drowned her. There was another institute or another situation where he had, you know, slammed his car head on into someone when he was having some sort of an episode. And, and it was a case, though, where he had no other criminal history. There were no other bad acts. There were these terrifying acts that occurred. And, and of course, he had uh, th- this very plea. I remember speaking to his attorney who said to me and the, the line has stuck out uh, in my mind ever since. He said, you know, in the United States of America, thank God we don't punish mental illness. We treat the mentally ill. And, and that's that sentiment you're talking about. I, I, I do think that and I wonder if people look at someone like Daryl Brooks differently because of the lengthy criminal history, because of the number of times he's done things that, uh, you know, over and over heinous crimes, shooting at his own family members. And, and you sort of have a track record that says these weren't anomalies. This is sort of y- your M.O. It's harder, I imagine, to get the public to sort of accept an acquittal, even if it means being institutionalized in a treatment facility, right? Yeah, I, I, my guess is based on his past behavior and records and things, there won't be one in this case either. Um, you know, those kinds of things usually weigh on a jury as to whether he's responsible and whether he made, you know, active choices to engage in certain behavior, whether it was reckless or intentional. And uh, um, so I think that that um, I understand why people get upset with that. But, you know, if he truly was out of control, but, you know, he didn't. There was nothing about his behavior afterward that looked like he was out of control. And that's one of the things they look at a lot is, you know, when he gets captured or what happens afterwards and how is he acting? What, you know, does he remember or, you know, what's he reciting? And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of indicia that maybe he knew what was going on. Well, in fact, you, you referenced that front porch situation and, and in the video that we can see, the police say, put your hands up. And he says, whoa, 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 which is almost a recognition like, hey, there, I know what's going on here. Uh, obviously, those things are going to play into that decision. Right, right. Well, I think that's as good a time as any for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual and have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. Sarah Smith usually joins us, uh, Justice Geske, uh, that is our executive producer. She joins us to ask that question. She's unavailable this week, um, but I have prepared a question. I hope you don't mind me, you know, I know because you haven't prepared, but but I'm, uh, this is one um, that I, I am always curious, someone who's been in the legal profession as long as you have been, and I know a lot of the work you do, um, you know, in restorative justice has, has great meaning and purpose. I wonder, I, I wonder, when you've spent a whole career in a field like this, if there's one thing you could change about the legal system in Wisconsin or maybe in the United States, is it, what, what would that be? If there's something you could change or improve or you think could be done better, what would that one thing be? And I know those are hard on the spot. 
And maybe that's not as casual and fun as we usually ask here, but boy, the opportunity to ask someone like you that question, I, I couldn't help myself. Well, I'm going to go to my restorative justice work because that is an area that I think um, touches on something that our justice system doesn't. Um, to give victims um, opportunities that they want to have a conversation with the offender. Um, you know, my experience of sitting on the bench and sitting through a sentencing, um, you know, all the, the witnesses and victims know about a particular offender is that he or she committed this awful crime and hurt their loved one or hurt them or whatever it is. And they see them as pure evil and understandably. And all they hear from the defendant is, I'm sorry, and they don't believe it. And then the defendant walks out of the courtroom. And a lot of those victims continue to be traumatized and worried and afraid and things. And my experience is for victims who are interested in having a conversation, sometimes it's as much as 10 years later with an offender, they find out that that offender is also a human being, um, that he or she has family, that there are things in their family. And it's not to justify or to excuse what they happen but it often allays their fears and gives them a chance to be able to say, Mr. Defendant, this is what you took from me. Here's my loved one. This is what happened to my family. And none of that happens in our justice system because of the, you know, it's the defendant's rights and then we have the sentencing. And so I think to have that opportunity for people who want it, um, it you know, I've done it in lots of contexts. I do it in, I do in crimes of severe violence. I work with family members of homicide victims who want to meet face-to-face with offenders. And I always thought that was crazy. I didn't think anybody would want to do it, but actually there are a lot of people that want to do it. Um, I'm currently working with a widow of a police officer, not a widow, a mother of a police officer who was killed in the line of duty, who wants to meet with one of the shooters. Um, and um, partly just to have that conversation. So I, I, you know, sort of put some of the humanity back into it, at least that people can see that these are whole people um, and not just personified evil, um, I think would be important. It, it is interesting that you, what you say about a sentencing, because I've sat through so many, I mean, as journalists, we cover sentencings maybe as, in more than any other type of hearing, because that's when you're going to hear from all the people impacted. You're going to hear from people who aren't officials or attorneys, but you're also going to hear from the defendant, if anything's going to be said by the defendant, it's usually there because they often won't testify at their own trial. Um, and, and I've heard defendants who have been apologetic and they they seem sincere. And as you said, even then, it's almost as though this just isn't the venue for forgiveness for a victim. I mean, I've still been hurt. You haven't been punished yet. And then there are others where there seems to be no sincerity or no uh, no concern at all for what they've done. It's almost as though no matter what a defendant says at sentencing, that's not going to satisfy a victim. And, and I think understandably in a lot of these cases, right? Right. And, you know, for some offender, I mean, I've done prison circles and worked with offenders who've been incarcerated for many years. It, you know, they often don't fully understand. I mean, that's why we bring victims in and we have them talk they don't fully understand and think about that, what I call the ripple effects of a homicide or an armed robbery. You know, a lot of these guys in Milwaukee, it's a drug war between a couple of drug dealers and, you know, they figure one's going to die, one's going to go to prison, but they never think about the mother of the guy they killed or the fact that their own children have been victimized because they're now incarcerated for life um, or what it's like for the family of the deceased to have Christmas and those holidays with that person missing. And so that's what we do, you know, in restorative justice circle working in the prisons is really to have 
um, offenders, but all of us remember that, you know, there's a lot of ripples that happen. You know, I, the defendant's all about him or her in the courtroom. And I get that. I mean, that's the way we've built it. But um, it shouldn't be all about him or her. And, and for them to have some understanding that they didn't just violate a law or catch a case, as they like to say, but that they, in fact, really hurt other humans, sometimes in their own communities and their own families. And so, you know, I, I've told offenders when I work with them in prison, I said, you know, when you said you were sorry in the courtroom, that family didn't believe you and you can't blame them. That's the first time they've heard it throughout the whole criminal proceeding and they don't believe it. And then that's the last thing they hear. And so, you know, and then we tell defendants they can't contact or write an apology letter. And, and uh, there's a lot of harm to victims because, because of that. So anyway, that's really why I do the work I do. I think it's really important for all of us to appreciate how we hurt people in ripples when we, when we do destructive things. How do people who want to access something like that get something like that? There is a, a victim services with the Department of Correction, and if a victim asks for it, and we only do them if they're victim initiated. We don't do offender initiated because we don't want to call in a victim, you know, five years after a homicide or a sexual assault and say, you know, the guy would really like to sit down and have a conversation with you because that can re-traumatize them. Um, but they can contact the Department of Corrections because I give a lot of speeches. I, I've cut down, but I used to average about two or three speeches a month. Um, I have a lot of people that would hear and, and would do referrals to us. Um, but there is a program at UW um, Law School, which is run by one of my former students. And we, we're running ours at the law school now, where if people call us or contact us, you know, we're willing to explore it. The defendant has to do it, be voluntary about it. And we actually spend six months to a year preparing both of them before we put them together. I mean, it's very carefully done because we don't want to re-traumatize the victim. Um, but they are incredibly successful. And sometimes there's forgiveness. Sometimes they don't want to call it that. And that's fine. But there's almost always healing for both of them. And I've had offenders tell me it was the best thing they ever did was to take responsibility for what they did and, and to be able to tell their story to the victim's family. So... Okay, so I turned the off-the-record topic into something super serious, so I, I have to ask one more casual question. What's your favorite thing to do in a Wisconsin summer? I think go to, go on a lake, go to lakes, go walking, nature, just enjoy the, the summer. You know, I love the flowers, I love the trees, and it's, it's walking and being outside. It's the best season in Wisconsin, isn't it? It absolutely is. Well, fall is pretty good, too, if we get one. <laughs> if it's longer than a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, right. We hope the snow holds off until at least December 1st. Right. Janine Geske, thank you so much for being our guest this week. Really appreciate your expertise and, and your availability. Sure. Anytime. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record, an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again next week. <laughs>